right now on Matter of Fact, why immigrants are key to making America's workforce great. The path to revitalization all across this country of towns that are shrinking, that are aging, has been an influx of immigrants. We visit Arcadia, Wisconsin, where the Latinx population is helping revitalize the economy. Plus, a first-hand account of the critical situation in Afghanistan. How the brutal winter, COVID, and economic sanctions have created a devastating reality. Imagine, you cannot feed your child, you cannot keep your child warm, the snow is pounding down and it's below minus temperatures. Also, the first city to let residents interview police recruits. What made you choose this profession and why here? A look at an effort to reshape policing, one recruit at a time. And why the American Red Cross is desperate for donors right now. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. There's a significant shift happening in America right now. The latest U.S. Census shows that in rural America, 24% of the population are people of color. Many are immigrants, many are Latinx, and many of them are filling jobs, leading to the question, could immigrant labor be the answer to worker shortages that are in the country right now? Could they, in fact, reshape the American economy? Last fall, we brought you the story of Arcadia, a town of a few thousand people in west central Wisconsin. Over the past two decades, the Latinx population there has grown rapidly and forms a large part of the town's workforce. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to Arcadia to see just how this is impacting the community. In an old German church turned museum, Carol Berkland is tasked with documenting the history of Arcadia, Wisconsin. It was Native Americans here. Uh, nothing was here. And then the, the English came and then the Polish and the Germans. The small town settled in the mid 1800s by grain farmers. Today, the face of Arcadia is changing once again. The number of Latino immigrants skyrocketing here over the past two decades. They now make up more than 60% of Arcadia's population. 36-year-old Freddy Rebeletto came here when he was 15, one of only a handful of Mexicans in his high school. There was no Mexican stores in Arcadia. The sports were different. Uh, now, now they have uh, soccer. He's following in his father's footsteps, a supervisor at a chicken processing plant. Others drawn to Arcadia for jobs in furniture manufacturing or often on dairy farms. Cole Bowick, president of Arcadia's Chamber of Commerce. He says the change has revitalized a once struggling downtown. One of the statistics is one manufacturing job creates 3.4 additional jobs. And we wouldn't have the, the restaurants in town, we wouldn't have the retailers in town, would it not be for these large companies here? So if we're unable to fill those open positions, then companies look at you know relocating to different areas. Dairy farmer John Rose now says he hasn't had an American-born job applicant in more than a decade. Would you have a farm if you couldn't hire immigrants? No. The reality is uh, uh, if uh, these 12 people left, um, there was nothing. The only thing we could do is uh, quit, sell the cows, 
So Rose now, like many other employers across the region, relying on workers whose immigration status is often murky. What we as employers are required to do is we're required to get documentation within three days of, of employment, which we do. Whether they're real or not, we don't know. And uh, so if I had a guess, 95% um, are undocumented. That's why some back in Arcadia say it could take another generation for the city to truly adapt. Sometimes you'll see resistance uh, come in areas of some people don't like change. A lot of times you'll see rural America and small town communities that if you're not changing and you're not adapting, you're dying. In Arcadia, Wisconsin, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Joining me now, Deepak Baragava. He's the Distinguished Lecturer of Urban Studies at the City University of New York. So nice to have you with us, sir. So to what degree is it the pandemic? Or is it the great resignation? Or is it low unemployment? Or is it all of the above that are causing the labor shortages that we're seeing today? Because of the pandemic, we've had um, huge shortages of labor in a variety of industries, in trucking and personal services and education and healthcare. But that comes on top of a long-term trend where the country is aging and our population is growing at the, at the lowest level in over 100 years. Immigration, we know, uh, slowed dramatically, halted, essentially, I think, in this pandemic. Um, what has been the impact on the labor market and therefore the impact on the economy? Yeah, we're seeing dramatic impacts of the slowdown of immigration in a whole variety of sectors, whether it's farm workers or meatpacking workers or healthcare workers. And that's contributed to shortages across the board that have had a devastating impact on the economy and really contributed to some of the supply chain issues that we've all heard so much about. The country will need millions more workers over the next 30 years, and the surest solution to that is, is a dramatic increase in our immigration levels. So what can the federal government do to fill all these jobs by immigrant workers in industries where, you know, listen, let's be frank, often American, native-born Americans do not want those jobs? Ultimately, there's going to have to be a congressional action to increase the number of folks who come to the United States um, with various kinds of visas, humanitarian visas, work visas. Do you see any drawbacks to fast-tracking immigrant visas? The one danger is, is if we bring immigrants in without the same protections, the same rights, the same labor protections as other workers, and we have done this in our country's history, it could have a very negative effect, not just for immigrants who will be exploited, but also for native-born workers. We told the story of Arcadia, which is a little tiny town in, in Wisconsin, and how many of those jobs that are in factories are, are really filled by immigrants. How many small towns would you guess are very similar to Arcadia? The story of Arcadia is really the story of rural America. And um, I think people are surprised by this, but the path to revitalization all across this country of towns that are shrinking, that are aging, has been an influx of immigrants. That is the future for rural economic development in this country. Um, and it is going to be the story of America's um, renewal as well. Professor Deepak Bhargava is joining us from CUNY. Nice to see you, sir. Thank you so much for your insights. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, facing famine, 
millions of people in Afghanistan are at a risk of starvation. In Afghanistan, every time, people just work for food, and they just want to find food. And how the citizens of one town in upstate New York are helping police screen candidates for the force. Has there been anybody who's, who you've changed your mind about? Plus, what do donuts and the Super Bowl have in common? If you donate blood this month, you'll find out. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. It's nearly impossible to adequately describe the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. This past week, the Taliban met with Western leaders in Norway to address the situation in the country. According to the UN World Food Program, more than half of the country's 40 million people face extreme hunger. Nearly 9 million are at risk of famine, including 1 million children. Now, the crisis is exacerbated by economic sanctions imposed after the Taliban took power. Mary Ellen McGroarty, who heads up Afghanistan's humanitarian efforts for the agency, talked to our correspondent, Diane Roberts, about the suffering that she is witnessing firsthand as temperatures dip well below zero. Imagine. You cannot feed your child, you cannot keep your child warm, the snow is pounding down and it's below minus temperatures. And you are some people who never had to stand in a line before with your hand out looking for assistance. Your dignity has been stripped away, your hopes, your aspirations have been stripped away. That's Mary Ellen McGroarty's description of life in Afghanistan today. This Irish-born former lawyer who goes by Mel is director for the World Food Program in Afghanistan, a crusade that's become her second career. It just hit me in the heart and hit me in the head, and I, I continued with it. After stints in Sudan and Rwanda, she finds herself at a humanitarian epicenter as Afghanistan weathers a severe winter where the main source of indoor heat comes from wood-burning stoves. Food is scarce after having suffered its most severe drought in 30 years and its people suffering from the impact of COVID. Many pushed from their homes because of the conflict caused by the Taliban takeover last August. I spend quite a bit of time troubleshooting as well if things are going wrong, and some of that troubleshooting involves talking to the Taliban. Oh, really? Yes. What is that like, talking with the Taliban? I suppose over the last couple of months, I suppose we find a, we find a way. I suppose the first couple of ones were interesting because, of course, I am a woman. McGroarty has been able to navigate her job despite her gender. But for many Afghan women who lived and worked more freely during the past 20 years, going back to life under the Taliban has been hard. You know, the many women I meet that are unable to go to work, the trauma that women are feeling. The WFP says these women, one a former principal and one a former teacher, are now selling clothes on the street and wondering how they will feed their families. It's the trauma and that, just the wrenching. Because they're young, they're young women, you know, they're, they're in their 20s or in their 30s, their whole life ahead of them. But it is not just women suffering. There are days, I have to confess, I wish I hadn't been there before the 15th of August, because now I've seen the hopes and the aspirations just shattered. Like Mahmoud's dream of becoming a doctor, the WFP met him at a food distribution site. The economic collapse in his home of Mazari Sharif has left the recent high school grad thinking more about food than college. 
maybe it is different from other countries. In Afghanistan, every time people just work for food and they just want to find food for eating. One thing that is working for now, McGrory says the Taliban allows the World Food Program access around the country, serving people desperate for food deliveries critical to their survival. They don't have anything. They spend their furniture, sell their furniture, sell their animals, houses for food. But now they don't have anything to buy food. McGrory says it's important to push past geopolitics to see people as people and feed them. For matter of fact, I'm Diane Roberts. When we come back, could future police forces be decided by panel? We've definitely had uh, an inside look at the way candidates are interacting with the community members. Why one town in upstate New York is giving it a go. And the link between a massive volcanic eruption on a South Pacific island and an environmental disaster on a continent thousands of miles away. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. In early February, President Biden is expected to sign executive orders on police reform. It's a way for the administration to jumpstart the issue after their push for bipartisan passage of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act failed. Though federal legislation is stalled, there is movement at the local level in cities like Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, and Oakland, California. Now add Schenectady, New York to that list. It's a city of about 60,000 people, and it might be the first to use a citizen panel to vet potential police officers. The panel is the idea of community activist William Rivas and was implemented by Lieutenant Paul Antonovich. Why don't you describe how the civilian panel works? It's five community members, um, different organizations. Diff uh, and again, this is why we're bringing more people in now to just create a more diverse panel uh, that truly reflects the diversity of our, of our population, our community. Um, but it's a conversation. Um, and every officer that comes in, kind of the first thing that we tell them is, you know, whatever, whatever answers you prepared the night before, don't come in here with that. We're not in here to judge anyone. We're in here to have a discussion. And, uh, you know, those... But aren't you literally in there to judge people? No. no we, I, it, it's a learning experience for me because I don't know what uh, a potential officer's expectation is coming into the community of Schenectady. I want to know. You know, why are you becoming an officer? You know, your upbringing, what was your engagement like with police officers in your community? You know, what made you choose this profession and why here? How much time do you get with each potential... 30 to 45 minutes. Oh, wow. That's a lot of time. How do people take it? I wouldn't say resistance, but some, you know, nerves, you know, associated with, you know, this is new to me, this is not something that I was prepared for. But uh, ultimately, I think it, it provided a, a very unique opportunity for us, uh, you know, in the administration to be able to uh, see how these candidates are interacting with community members. What kinds of things were you learning about some of these candidates in that civilian panel process? We've definitely had uh, an inside look at the way candidates are interacting with the community members in both a positive and a negative. So we've seen people who might have seemed a little bit uh, shy or uh, introverted and kind of see them open up because of the dynamic that Will and, and his uh, fellow panel members are able to you know, pull out of them with the, the conversation that they, they develop. We've also had people who 
you know, seemed to be very, uh, you know, a good candidate and then kind of falter a little bit during the conversations and, you know, maybe become defensive to certain things that, um, you know, it was a little bit of a warning for us that, you know, maybe this person might not be the, the best choice. Has there been anybody who's, who you've changed your mind about? There are uh, a few people that have went through the process and um, we decided not to go with. So there, it does hold weight. It's not, uh, like I said, a, something to placate everyone. There's a legitimacy to it. You can watch the entire interview in our latest listening tour, Promises of Change, at matteroffact.tv. Coming up, the creative incentives to get people to give blood as the American Red Cross declares its first ever blood crisis. And up to 10 megatons of TNT. Scientists say that's the force of Tonga's volcanic eruption, how it triggered a massive cleanup effort around the world. To matter of fact, the massive volcano that erupted on a South Pacific island earlier this month has had a disastrous impact on a continent thousands of miles away. On January 15th, the volcano exploded on one of Tonga's uninhabited islands near Fiji. It created an umbrella cloud 300 miles wide and triggered tsunamis in the region. The blast was reportedly hundreds of times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Tonga's largest island alone has 17 million cubic feet of ash to clean up. But the fallout was also felt more than 6,000 miles away near Lima, Peru. A tanker unloading crude oil at a refinery was hit by massive waves stemming from the force of the eruption, spilling 6,000 barrels into the water. The result, an ecological disaster, affecting nearly 7,000 square miles of protected area. The oil spill cleanup is expected to take weeks. Up next, a dozen free donuts? It's just one way of encouraging people to line up to give blood this month. Finally, the American Red Cross is declaring its first ever blood crisis. Founded in 1881, the American Red Cross supplies 40% of the nation's blood and plasma. It relies on donations to keep blood banks full. Since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been a 10% drop in people giving blood. Restrictions on large gatherings and empty college campuses have shut down events like blood drives. Since blood can't be manufactured or stockpiled, blood banks need constant replenishment. For hospitals who are treating accident victims or cancer patients who often need blood transfusions to survive. January is National Blood Donor Month, and anybody donating blood in this month to the Red Cross will automatically be entered to win two tickets to this year's Super Bowl. Also, if that weren't enough, Krispy Kreme will give a dozen donuts to anybody who can prove they gave blood this month. Come on, what more incentive do you need? That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you next week. If you missed our top stories about how immigration is changing small-town America and impacting the workforce, the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, citizens helping a police department screen candidates, and the global impact of the Tonga volcanic eruption, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.